We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palo and Pakana. We're recording here on Lutruita, and as we are a podcast... I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here, I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So if you tuned into the last two weeks, listeners, you would know that this is the third and final episode in a space mini-series. We've recorded all three episodes at the Groat Reba Museum down here in Cambridge. And today we're joined with not one, but two guests, Brett Reed and Patrick Yates-Jones. We're going to be hearing from Brett first, then Patrick, and then all of us are going to be heading on over into a very exciting sci-fi-like room called the Control Room to find out what's going on over there. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined today by Simon Salafor, who is making her second episode as a co-host for Twix. So, Simon, can you tell us a bit more about our first guest? Hello, how are you? I hope everyone enjoying being here in Groat River Museum. We are here with Brett, who is the manager of 22 years for Mount Pleasant Observatory. He's done a lot of things in here, taking care of the telescopes, not only in Tasmania, but also around Australia, Northern Territory, Western Australia, and South Australia as well. So, Brett, you are not from Tasmania. Where are you from? And what brought you to Tasmania? Well, yes, I'm from Victoria. I grew up on a farm, and I studied electronics, and I worked at RMIT, which is uh, in the city, in the basement of Swanson Street. We had an electrical engineering laboratory there that had electrical machines and high-voltage laboratory, and my job there was as a lab manager looking after uh, equipment. So I would... um, Also, we had a team of technical staff, and and we looked at um, training... Well, I wasn't involved in the training, but was involved in the technical support uh, for variable speed drives, and uh, that's when automation was happening, um, you know, more than 20 years ago. Um, Variable speed drives were replacing older DC motors and um, things that for uh, automation and and factories, and, and engineers would be involved in um, control systems and such things to make it so that, like, for example, a conveyor belt, you'd have to have the different motors going at the same speed um, to not break the belt. (laughs) Um, So I came to Tasmania in 2001 to do this job. My wife is from Tasmania and it was good to come here and um, live. I worked out that I would live longer if I lived in Tasmania. It's less stress than, as I mentioned, in the basement of a 
building in the city to this beautiful view that we have here today. If you look out from the Reba Museum, out over the pit water and it's just, and over the wineries, it's just beautiful. So um, yeah, that's how I came to Tasmania. I can agree that it is a beautiful view that we're looking out behind you in the windows there. So what have you been doing here since 2001? Yes, well, I think that one of the first things that were popping fuses on this big telescope we have outside, it's actually 26 metres diameter, and so it's an antenna that weighs 340 tonnes. And they're doing experiments that run for 24 hours, and originally it came from NASA in Canberra, in Auroral Valley, and at that stage it would have had hydraulic drives. So these are big machines, and they, they'd need quite a team of people to look after that. And then when it came here, it went to SCR-DC drives, which are a, a technology um, that uh, is quite common, yet um, requires more maintenance and also had uh, a problem where it was popping some fuses. So when I got here, we, um, one of my colleagues, Eric, and I, we changed it to some drives that are AC drives and more up-to-date technology. And uh, they, the problem of fuse popping went away. What's the main difference between those two types of drives? So DC drives are, you know, traditional DC motors. They have brushes in them and AC drives don't have brushes. The only moving part is the rotor itself. A drive is a, is a motor plus an electronic controller. And so the two things together make a variable speed drive. And so a DC drive, you'll have a variable voltage driving, a, um, driving the, the brushes on the armature. And those contacts kind of uh, wear out, the brushes wear out. Whereas the AC drives, you have a rotating magnetic field um, and you can change the frequency of it by changing the frequency of the supply. Normally, AC motors go at one speed. Well, electronics means that we can drive it at variable speed. Wow, that's great. <laughs> I, I use these telescopes for my PhD, but I've never known these differences and these technical stuff. We are just using them. Um, I want to ask that with how many radio telescopes did you start and now how many do we have at UTES and you're taking care of all of them for us? Before I came, um, there was uh, actually a man I just heard about who uh, passed away on the weekend. His name was Pip Hamilton and, also, and I didn't ever meet him. And Peter McCulloch, they set up the... Um, they got the 26-metre antenna from NASA and moved it here. So that was the first one. And then also... Uh, after I'd come in the 90s, the Seduna antenna in South Australia was with OTC. Now, OTC is Overseas Telecommunications Commission, and when I was young, um, it was a great thing to see live via satellite plastered across the bottom of the television screen, and an interview, you know, was happening live. So what would happen was our television signals from overseas would arrive in Seduna and at this radio telescope, well, it's now a radio telescope, at that stage it was a satellite antenna, pointed over the Indian Ocean and 
I think the ground station was in England. That was converted in 1990s to a radio telescope. The CSIRO was involved as well, but UTAS was the ones who took it on under Peter McCulloch. And uh, also Simon Ellingson has um, been involved with uh, both those sites and uh, in the code and, and, and writing that. So he's been involved as well. I took on the hardware management. So my job is, again, technical support, I'm not an engineer, I'm not an astrophysicist, but I do do looking after the hardware so that the researchers can do their work. Since then, since I came here in uh, 2000, so it was Seduna and in South Australia and Hobart, there's been another array of radio telescopes and I think, Simon, your work has, has been using that quite a lot with, um, uh, for geodesy. So geodesy if you remember back, was um, measuring the, the shape of the Earth. And this is something that I don't really know about, but I believe that they can measure between these radio telescopes to one in a billion. And one in a billion would mean uh, with this new telescope array that, that was being built, one in Catherine in Northern Territory and one in near Geraldton in Western Australia in uh, near a town called Minganu. It's actually Yarragadi is the name of the farm that it's on. So those sites are Catherine Northern Territory, Yarragadi in uh, Western Australia, and a new one here in Hobart in Cambridge. Those three sites were added in about 2009 or 10, and the purpose for that has been primarily geodesy. So measuring the distances between those dishes, and then also for the whole array to the rest of the world. And so it's just really impressive that they can measure to one in a billion. So on that 3,000 kilometre baseline, that's three millimetres. Well, I think they're aiming at that. I think they've probably achieved five millimetres. Simon is the expert. She could tell you if that was five or 10 millimetres. Whatever it is, it's pretty good. One of my project uh, aim was helping to get to millimetre uh, accuracy in the measuring the positions. And one of the other cool things about, you know, these radio telescopes, the array of telescopes that are helping the geodesists, and uh, it's plus the other techniques. Uh, nowadays we know that the Australia continent is moving seven centimeter per year to north-northeast. So, and it's all coming from these radio telescopes plus GPS and other techniques. So it was important to have this array. And some people like Brett helping us to get more information, 24 hours, working smoothly, and then, yeah, providing the information for the other scientists in other fields. That's so awesome. And it sounds like you'll need to work a lot in collaboration with the other sites that exist across Australia. Do you often get to visit them or work with those people directly, or is it you share information remotely with one another? I think the answer to that would be both. Um, I did get a chance to go to um, Haystack, which is the MIT observatory that they run um, in Massachusetts. And uh, a lot of the technology has come from there and um, you know, has been developed there. Um, there is a lot of these radio telescopes in the Northern Hemisphere and there's not so much in the south. And so, yeah, so, so we're kind of in demand down here. But the actual, I remember um, there's lots of collaboration between the 
University of Tasmania sites and the other sites in um, IVS, which is International VLBI Service. So VLBI is that technique of making uh, several radio telescopes become one big one. And uh, so there's lots of sites in the Northern Hemisphere and uh, I've really only been, though, to the ones in um, MIT. And, uh, but we're in contact with lots of them. You know, we've had visitors also from these different ones coming here. More recently, the, the oscope or the, the antennas that UTAS are running have become kind of like a, another technology leader in um, how to control remote radio telescopes. Let's face it, you know, Catherine in Northern Territory is pretty remote and um, it's good to be able to run that mostly unattended. And we know that it's a group of people making that happen. For the next part, we will talk to Patrick and see what's his role in this observatory and helping the others and the collaboration between different sites. So stick us for part two as we delve into Patrick's work in Tasmania. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are joined by Dr. Patrick J. Jones. Patrick done his PhD at UTES, and now he is a research associate at the University of Tasmania. He works on radio astronomy problems, satellite tracking, and data accusation and processing. His research revolves around the technical operations of radio telescopes. Patrick, as I mentioned, you have done your PhD studies at UTES. What was your area of research during your PhD? My PhD was on black holes and specifically looking at the accretion disk surrounding these black holes which is where um, gas is drawn in by the gravitational pull of these objects and starts circling around and as it circles around due to conservation of angular momentum and some other funky physics stuff we actually get uh, this gas launched out as two opposing jets away from the black hole uh, and these jets are massive. They blast through the galaxy that they're launched from. Uh, they're made of super hot plasma moving at relativistic speeds, and they have huge impacts on uh, the galaxy itself and uh, what the gas is doing in the galaxy. So they heat up parts of the gas in the galaxy, they send shocks through it, they can enhance star formation in certain regions, and they can also reduce star formation in other regions. And importantly, they're really, really bright uh, in the radio sky, so with our radio telescopes when we look at them, which means they're a really good uh, object to study with our radio telescopes and try to understand a bit more about the role that they play in galaxy evolution. So specifically, I ran uh, simulations of these jets from black holes in uh, galactic environments to look at how they changed the environment that they were running into and then taking those simulations and processing them into an image that we could compare with uh, the data we get from actual radio telescopes to do that comparison between what we're simulating and what we observe to have more of an understanding of how galaxies change and evolve from the Big Bang up to present day. And what were the main findings out of your PhD? Uh, that is a good question. The, ma the main findings were around 
really just how important these jets actually are and the importance of the role that they play in galaxy evolution. So with the simulation suite that I ran, we developed a simulation suite that used more complex environments than had been used before. And we're really able to drill down into some of the specific effects that these radio galaxies were having in terms of uh, where the energy was going and where it was being deposited. And also one of the main outcomes of my PhD was an improved processing pipeline for producing these syn synthetic observations uh, from the simulations so that we can compare them. And as new radio telescopes come online, the next generation radio telescopes are going to do really large surveys of the sky and we're going to detect far more radio galaxies than we currently do. Having, a, uh, having an understanding grounded in modeling of what we're actually seeing allows us to interpret these observations and it's particularly important with the size of data that we're going to have coming in. We're no longer at the point where one person can look at each image individually and try to interpret what's going on. We need some sort of modeling that we can use in an algorithm of some sort to uh, help automate that process. I know that you're doing something different from your PhD. Is what you're doing here now, it's related to your PhD or totally different stuff? I think one of the best things about doing my PhD at UTAS was access to the radio telescope infrastructure that we have. And a lot of that, uh, because my PhD wasn't directly using them for my research, I still got to be involved with them as an observer. So as part of these geodesy sessions that have been mentioned before, uh, the PhD students would monitor the experiments and make sure that everything was running smoothly, which gave us a really good hands-on experience with the telescopes. And as Simon said, uh, when you're monitoring over a night shift and there's not much else to do, you might start poking around in the code and trying to improve things and make things easier for you. And that definitely did, uh, that definitely led me into my current position at UTAS now, which is more on the technical side uh, and so I'm working with the telescopes that we have mainly here in Hobart and improving their operations and reliability as well. And also in particular looking at uh, one of the telescopes at the Cambridge site, the 14 meter, which was actually the first one that was on this site. Uh, and we are upgrading the control system for that one and modernising it a little bit. What's involved with updating a control system for such a huge and technical piece of equipment? Uh, it starts with identifying the requirements, so what we need to actually have the telescope do. Now, thankfully, we have lots of other telescopes to inform us of, of that, and so we are essentially copying the design of the others as we bring it over to upgrade the 14 metre. But part of that does involve moving to a new hardware platform to control the drives and motors that Brett talked about previously, uh, as, well as, um, as well as upgrading the software as well. So we need to upgrade the hardware platform and move to uh, some more modern hardware to interface with the the drives and the motors that Brett talked about before. And we're also upgrading the software to, as I mentioned, improve that reliability and uh, upgrade that from software that was written 10, 15 years ago to something that's more modern today. 
Fantastic. And that gives us a really good overview of what's been going on here. So listeners, stick with us for part three, where it may get a little bit noisier as we head over to the control room and we hear from Brett and Patrick what's going on in there. Welcome back listeners to the show and as you'll be able to notice in the background we've got some whirring sounds happening as we have changed location. We've left the museum and we've headed on over to the control room. So we've got both Brett and Patrick with us. Can you two explain what we're looking at? Well it's a little bit like being inside a radio receiver um, but it's much bigger. It's a whole room full of it. So there's uh, 14 racks of equipment, each one about two metres high. So in this first rack, you can see our, um, some numbers going away there. And uh, we've got universal time and sidereal time and right ascension declination. So I'm not an astronomer, but to an astronomer, they mean something. Right ascension and declination, I believe it's like longitude and latitude on the sky. And then uh, universal time is like the time in Greenwich Mean Time. Um, and sidereal time, I've heard, is this time according to the stars. So, um, yeah. And then we've got some computer screens. Some of the computers here are, would you believe it, 486 computers, which are pre-Pentium. Um, and they're actually still used to control the telescope. Now, Patrick is working on changing some of those, and the first one he's mentioned was for the 14-metre telescope, uh, although it didn't have a 486, no. Um, it had something even earlier, believe it or not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but once that job is completed on the 14-metre telescope, the aim is to bring the technology across and replace these 486 computers. But we also have... You know, like volume controls, and which is an attenuator, and we have an amplifier in, in the racks here. Uh, not one amplifier, but there's many amplifiers. And splitters and mixers, all things that mean things to RF engineers, and a radio frequency engineer, and to radio astronomers. Awesome. I definitely feel like I'm in a 1980s spy film when I'm inside here. There's a really funky machine over here with some sort of graph paper coming out of it. What is that? So, yeah, that machine would actually print out the signal coming directly off the telescope if you wanted to monitor it in real time. It's not used anymore because these days everything is recorded digitally. So as the signal comes in off the telescope, it goes into something called a digitizer, which reads the analog signal and converts it into ones and zeros that we can then process with a computer. Now, these telescopes generate huge amounts of data. So we actually have uh, quite a few different generations of recorders here. We have ones that used regular computer hard drives where you'd have a pack of hard drive modules. So you'd have about eight hard drives to a disk, oh, sorry, to a pack you'd push them into the machine and they would record all of the incoming data onto those hard drives. And then to transfer them around the world, we would actually ship those physical hard drives to the data processing center, whether that was, uh, we would get some data shipped here or we would ship them to somewhere in the US or in Europe to actually do the processing. 
Now everything is even simpler than that. We just have lots of big servers with loads of hard drives already in them and all of the transfers are done over the internet. So it's a lot easier to work with. We do, however, still have some remote telescope sites where the internet connection isn't very good. And for those, we actually do ship disks back for processing here and then we normally transfer them on to their final destination. Wow, and there's so much to take in when we're looking around this place. So many, so many wires, so many buttons. When someone starts working here, do you have to do an internship to learn how everything works or is it more learning on the job and what you need at each stage? I think you're right with the second one. I think it's more on the job and it's really great. I've noticed that our students get a chance to come out here and use the equipment and um, probably more than other universities for example because we have our own radio telescopes we're able to give people the opportunity to actually work with the hardware itself and if their experiment doesn't work the first time they can come back. A lot of the other universities where they have radio astronomy would need to book in with uh, the CSIRO telescopes which are just fantastic instruments but they might be a longer queue to use them. Speaking of queues, so you have mostly researchers and people associated with the university coming here. If someone had, say, a pastime interest in what you do here, is that possible? So we are definitely open to, if someone has a project that they'd like to do, they're welcome to come and talk to us about using our facilities. So as we've talked about, we do a lot of research work, um, both with Australian partners, but we also have some international partners. We do some spacecraft tracking for ESA, so the European Space Agency. Uh, and we also have some commercial experiments or activities that we do with these telescopes as well. So on one hand, we do a lot of research and we also let the students uh, get a lot of hands-on experience with these instruments. But we do also have um, some more commercial activities that we run on them as well. Can you tell us what it's like working at night, doing a night shift in the control room? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of eerie, to be honest. When you're out here at night, everything's dark except the dish is kind of just looming over you. But having said that, the control room is also, sounds kind of like white noise with lots of fans going. Uh, you can probably hear it in the background. And so I think it also makes you quite sleepy. So night shifts are always a fun experience out here. Thankfully, we don't do too many these days because most of the experiments are all set up uh, ahead of time and then just run as planned and you only get an alert or have to do something if there's an issue or something goes wrong, which doesn't happen all that often. Uh, but there are still occasions where you might need to start an experiment early in the morning or something like that. Uh, and you may have to do that out here or back at the, uh, the secondary control centre at UTAS as well. Well, thank you, Brett and Patrick, for talking with us today. Day. And thank you listeners for tuning in to this very loud end of the episode. If you enjoyed the show and want to find out more, you can look up That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. So my name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to thank my co-host again, Dr. Simon Salapour and our guests, Brett Reed and Dr. Patrick Yates-Jones. So from all of us, have a wonderful week off and look up to the stars tonight and think about what you learned today. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. 
GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.